And um, as our children are being dismissed, could you turn to Luke chapter 17? Luke chapter 17. And today we are uh, studying verses 1 to 6. That's on page 1037, if you're studying in a pew Bible. Page 1037, Luke chapter 17. That was a great, great testimonies, huh? Oh, just such a blessing. And you know, there's going to be more in the second service. If you want to hear a few more testimonies, we're going to have a baptism in the second service. So if you'd like to come and, you know, just stay like for the first 15, 20 minutes of the service, then take off. You, you didn't catch the other testimonies too. So we'll be having more in the next service. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Let me just read the passage and then we'll dig into it. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So, watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Well, this is a really fitting text for a Baptism and Testimony Sunday, a Sunday where people are coming into membership in the church, because this, this passage is all about what it means to live together as members of a local church in the body of Christ. See, following Jesus is a team sport. This was never meant to be done individually. Uh, God's plan is that we're saved. Yes, we're saved individually. We each have to personally come to faith in Jesus. You can't believe for me and I can't believe for you and I can't believe for my kids. Each of us has to personally come to faith in Jesus. But when we personally come to faith in Jesus, we're saved into the family of God. We're made part of a local community. And so God's plan has always been uh, the local church. You know, you read the New Testament and from Matthew to Revelation... God's dealing with the church. And when when the Bible says the church, sometimes we think of the church as all the Christians everywhere, but almost every single instance in the whole New Testament when the word church appears, it refers to a local church, which is interesting. It's talking about local assemblies where we gather together with other believers to worship God. And so God's plan for us is to be in accountable community with one another. Accountable community. Where we love each other enough, we hold each other accountable and encourage each other in our faith. God's plan for our Christian growth and for your Christian growth is that we would be like grapes in a bunch. That's how we grow. We're organically connected to each other in Jesus. Jesus is the vine. His life is flowing through uh, the Spirit into us. And then we together, we're ripening and we're growing and we're coloring up and we're swelling as we're growing spiritually together as a body. That's how it's supposed to work. Um, unfortunately, uh, so often in our own Christianity and our view of the church, we don't come at it like grapes in a bunch. We're more like marbles in a box. 
And we're all in the box together. And, oh, look, we're so close together. Until you flip the box over and then all the marbles go ding, 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 ding. And they, you know, roll around everywhere, unconnected, each its own autonomous little sphere, uh, disconnected from everybody else. Um, and this, this is a kind of attitude today. Like, you know, why do I need the church? I mean, I have my Bible. And I read my Bible. And uh, there's a couple people sometimes I read the Bible with every once in a while. And, you know, uh, I give some money to a charity um, that, that I like. And, and I, I golf and, and I go out and fish and, or I work in my garden. And that's like being in God's creation. So that's like worship. That's like my church. So, you know, why do I need church? Uh, and so there's this kind of mentality. In fact, uh, George Barna has recently written a book called Revolutions in which he argues that essentially the church is kind of outdated. And, and that there is a, a revolution taking place of personalized kind of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirituality, where our spirituality is, is our own sort of personal private expression, and two guys talking about Jesus on the golf course is just as good as anything else kind of thing. Um, and I think part of this kind of attitude toward the church and toward spirituality is, has to come uh, from us being Americans, because that's the American ethos, isn't it? Uh, America is, is very much individualistic. In fact, I would say one of our highest values, if not our highest value as Americans that we share, is individual autonomy. That, that's an American virtue. That, uh, you know, this is my life, and I'm fulfilling myself, and I'm actualizing myself, and I'm expressing myself, and, and no one should impinge upon my self-expression and, and self-fulfillment. Uh, now, you couple that virtue of autonomy with the habits of consumerism. Because we're all trained in consumerism. That's how we approach the world. And consumerism is about fluid commitments. You know, I, I go to this store over here because it works for me and it's close to me and has a good deal until they built that store right down the street. Uh, we lived uh, near what used to be Victory and then they built Stu Super Stop and Shop, which was closer and better, and so we switched. And if they built another store that was even better, we'd switch to that one. And I'm at this gym, unless this gym no longer, in the key phrases, works for me, and then I plug into the next gym, or whatever it is. So you have individual autonomy with the habits of consumerism, and then that's held together by the morality of relativism. And increasingly today, the, the, the morality of our culture is relativistic. And of course, you know what relativism is. It's this idea that there's no absolute right or wrong. There's nothing that's true for everybody everywhere. There's just, you know, you have your personal morality and I have mine and they may be the same or they may be different, but, you know, something's true for you and something completely 180 degrees opposite is true for me and that's okay because there is no absolute truth. Now, you know, take that whole package, which is, you know, part of the ethos in which we live and you apply it to the church and to Christianity. And so we come into the church as individuals saying, well, you know, what can this church do for me? Like, you know, because is this the kind of sermon I want to hear? Is this the kind of music I like? You know, is, is this, does this fit with my personal goals and ambitions? We don't come into the church saying, you know, what's the theology? That's just not a question people ask today. People don't think that way. It's more about, well, is this helping me? Do I feel encouraged? And we come in at like consumers, like, you know, what do you have for my kids? What kind of programs do you have? And do you have Bible studies for someone like me? I don't know, you know, who's someone like you? Well, someone who's between 40 and uh, 42, uh, who works in Boston, who's um, uh, single, um, and who, you know, we have these, like, lists. And do you have a Bible study for people like me? And if you don't, well, then I'll go to another church. In fact, what do we call it? Church shopping. It's consumerism applied to the church. 
And I understand there's times in your life when you don't have a church and you do have to kind of look around, but you know, it's not this, I plug in here, I unplug over there, I go to this and I go to that, and I'm just kind of everywhere because I'm a consumer. And then you have the relativism over all of it. And it's, it's like, Pastor, you know, if you're going to preach a sermon, preach something helpful to me. You know, preach about ten ways to communicate with my pet. Or, you know, or, you know <laughs> five ways to deal with stress. You know, that's the kind of helpful sermon that would apply to my life. Don't talk about sin. And don't talk about judgment. And definitely don't talk about hell, or I'll just go to another church. Because I don't want anything sort of in my face. I don't want it to be judgmental. And maybe that's why so many evangelical churches, when you walk into them, it feels more like a theater. It feels more like a shopping mall. And it feels less and less like you're walking into a family room where the family of God has come together to love each other and worship God together as a family. Uh, And I don't think that's a function necessarily of the size of the church. I think it's a function of the spirit and the climate of the church. So God's plan is that you and I would grow in our faith in accountable community with each other. That was God's plan from the beginning. And Adam and Eve blew it. And community has been disrupted ever since. But Jesus has come. He is the new Adam. And those who come to Christ, the Bible says, for everyone who receives Him, to those who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. And so God is our Father and we're brought together as adopted children into God's family. This is God's orphanage, the church. And we, the orphans of sin, have been brought together into a new family in Christ. And so the church is meant to be a family. And the way we grow in our faith isn't just a personal practice, but it's something that we do in community with one another. Because following Jesus is a team sport. So that's what this text is about. If you look at chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, it's a series of teachings Jesus gives, and what holds them together is they're about life together in community. This isn't everything that we could say about the church. This isn't everything that we could say about community in Christ. But it's just a couple things, and it really gives us kind of a flavor, a, a little window and insight into how, how it is that we grow as Christians and mature, how we ripen as grapes on the vine together in community. Like, okay, how does that work practically? And so here's a couple ways in which it works out practically. And essentially, there's just two, two commands here I want to highlight. And each of them shows how we together as a body encourage each other to grow in our faith. And the first command is, is this. Watch yourself. Keep an eye on yourself. Because the way I and the way you live your Christian life impacts the others around us in the body of Christ. So uh, look at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples... Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So, watch yourselves. That's the first command. That as a member of Christ's body, I have to watch myself because my life affects your life. Uh, again, this kind of flies in the face of the individualism. The individualism of our day says, well, look, I have my private life and you have your private life. And what I do behind my closed doors is my business. What I do in my bedroom is my business. And what I choose to smoke in my living room is my business. And, and you do your thing and that's your business. And, it, you know, hey, leave me alone. But it's like, no, our lives in Christ are connected to each other. And so my life is either going to inspire you to follow Christ 
or it's going to hinder you from following Christ. I'm either going to inspire you or tempt you, one of the two. So I have to watch myself very carefully. In fact, look back at verse 1. See how it says, things that cause people to sin? That phrase in English that takes one, two, three, four, five, uh, six words, that things that cause people to sin, is one word in Greek. It's called a scandalon, from which we get our word scandal. And it means uh, a stumbling block. It's like, you know, you're walking along and there's some big rock in the path and, you know, you're doing this. Or you're walking in the house and you're tripping over kids' uh, toys on the floor. and That's a stumbling block. It's a scandal on. And, and so it's something that in my walk with Jesus is tripping me up and hindering me from really walking with Christ freely. And Jesus says, you know, those things are going to come. Scandalons are going to come. They're in the world. This is a fallen world. It's hard to follow God. But woe to that person through whom they come. Be careful that, I have to be careful that my life isn't a stumbling block to you, but that I'm inspiring you instead, rather than tripping you up in your Christian life. He says it's better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. I mean, that's a pretty graphic image. That's how serious God takes sin and righteousness and holiness and how we need to uh, be encouragers in the faith rather than those who trip one another up. Uh, you know, think about it this way. It's like the family. You can use the analogy of your family. In the family, my life affects my family members. Haven't you ever seen a husband and wife have been together like 20 years? You know, they're like, they've morphed. They've melded. They're like those computer programs where you take one person's face, another person's face, and then you go, and it looks weird. That's how married couples look after 30 years. They're weird. They just kind of morphed. And so I have to be careful because my wife, my life is affecting my wife and her life is affecting me. We affect our children. You know, you have kids and then you hear them say things and you're like, oh, where did that come from? Actually, I know where that came from. Uh, just the other day, uh, I, think about, I think about two weeks ago, I heard one of my, one of my kids was being loud and obnoxious and my other kids said, would you be quiet? And I was like, hey, that's a little harsh. And then I thought, but you know, that sounds really familiar. In fact, I think that's exactly how I say it. <laughs> and so our kids learn things from us. So I have to be careful. Is my life a stumbling block to my children or not? Am I helping them uh, walk in, in their faith and uh, in godliness or not? And so now take that and apply it to the church. Is my life in the church, which is the family of God, inspiring you or is it tripping you up? Uh, I was really... Probably like you, I was very saddened and, you know, just sobered to hear about, uh, I'm sure you've heard in the news, Ted Haggart, uh, the, uh, so, uh, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, pastor of the mega church out in Colorado, and a guy that God has used greatly, and, you know, he, he stumbled and fell morally. And, you know, stuff like that just freaks me out, because it's like, wow, if he can fall, I can fall, you can fall, we can fall. Nobody is made of steel. We are all people saved by grace and we are still sinful if we, if we choose to take our eyes off Jesus. We can go down those paths very easily. But then I think, you know, what happens when a leader like that falls? I mean, it's such... It, it damages people, especially the little ones. The, and by the little ones, I take that to mean not just little kids, but, but more metaphorically, Jesus and Luke is talking about people who are weak in the faith, people who are new in the faith, and then they're looking up and saying, oh, is this whole thing a joke? I mean, if that, I thought that guy was like, you know, the, the Pope or whatever, and, and, you know, he's fallen, and 
Well, is this thing for real? And, and so it trips people up in their faith. It makes it harder for people to believe. That's why if you're going to be a leader in the church, and I'm preaching to myself here, oh, you have to watch yourself so carefully. So carefully. And my first job is just to watch myself to make sure that I don't fall into sin and trip you up. Teachers, if you're a Bible study teacher, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, we have to watch what we teach. We have to watch our doctrine very closely because false teaching trips people up. You know, you heard Doug's testimony about the deity of Christ, how, how that tripped him up until he finally came to a scriptural understanding of that and how that hindered his Christian life. We have to be careful of our lives. We have to watch ourselves. Uh, church leaders, I'm just going to plead with you here. If you're a church leader, if you're an elder, deacon, Bible study leader, committee leader, Sunday school teacher, church leaders have to be devoted to the unity of the church. Because when church leaders forget that and they do things that destroy the unity of the church, that's a huge stumbling block to people. Huge stumbling block. You know, when a church split happens, there's always three groups. The church never splits in two. It always splits into three. One group stays. Another group goes, and they either join other churches or they start a new church or something like that. But there's a third group. You know who the third group is? They're the people who just disappear. And they stop going anywhere because they're so discouraged by what they see. Those are the little ones who are hurt and, and they just evaporate. And because they're so weak and they're so broken and then they see that and they say, I just can't take this. I thought this was real. I guess it's not. I don't know. I, I just can't go anywhere. And it hinders their faith. And so church leaders, I just plead with you to love unity. And you know, things happen. It's not always possible to preserve unity. But as far as it depends upon you, be a lover and a protector of the unity of the church so that we don't cause a stumbling block to people in their faith. Um, it's not just leaders, though. It's everybody. Uh, you know, gossip is a stumbling block. If I come to you and say, oh, do you see so-and-so? They're so like this and they're that. And, blah, blah, blah. and then, and now you're stumbled because now you're like, you see so-and-so and, and because of what I said to you, you're like, well, so-and-so really like that? Oh, I want to think well of them. Oh, what do I do? And so now I've, I've tripped you up. I've put a temptation in your way. Uh, how we dress can be a stumbling block. Do you dress modestly? I mean, think about the practical things. And this is hard because clothing today, especially women's clothing, it's just the style. It's very, you know, low cut and revealing and it's a stumbling block. You know? And so think about how you're dressing. There's Bible verses. I could preach you a sermon from the Bible about modesty in women's clothing. It's in there. And maybe we should. But I'm just thinking about all these kinds of things that I need to watch myself because my life affects you and your life affects me. And if I love you as my family member in Christ, then I want to try to keep you from being tripped up and you want to keep me from being tripped up. And so first question for application to ask yourself. Is your life a hindrance to others or is it an inspiration to others? Because, see, that's the flip side, too, is that we can inspire others. We're talking about the negative, don't trip people up. The, the positive is inspire people. That's one of the great things about being in the local church that I love. It's the people who inspire me with their faith. And, and you know, I could go on. I, I'm inspired by Eldon Abbott in our church the chairman of our board of elders. I'm inspired by his wisdom and his sort of even-handedness and his, his fairness and justice. He's just a very fair-minded, gentle man. And I just I love that about him. 
I'm inspired by Tim and Janet Ells and Chung Lee Ling and his wife and the way they just serve. I mean, these are the kind of people who, then you need anything done, they do it. Uh, I'm inspired by John and Cindy Norton and I'm inspired by George and Judy Noon. They pray the heavens down. They, they pray so intensely and fervently. And I could go on and on. I mean, I, I'm not just singling them out. I mean, I could name lots of you here who inspire me because I watch your lives. And here's the question. How can you get that if your Christianity just consists of you privately reading your Bible and watching a TV preacher? If that's your church, you know, using the term extremely loosely, how can you get that? Part of the church is, is not just learning the truths, but I see living examples of people who embody it. So when I think of humility, I don't think about a, a textbook definition. I think of humble people that I know. And I, they, they call, they're called to my mind. You know, I'll remember uh, Doug and Sandra's testimony up here. That'll say something to me about people who found out about the grace of God. And so it's as we live together in community that we're inspired to follow Christ. So is my life inspiring you or is it tripping you up? Uh, is there some sin in your life that you need to repent of because you know it's going to trip people up? That's the question to ask ourselves. But there's another command here. We've got to move on. One command is watch yourself. Here's the second command. Is, we could sum it up by saying watch one another. Watch one another. Verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You hear that sound? That's the sound of postmodern jaws hitting the floor everywhere. <laughs> what? Rebuke somebody else? Who are you to impose your morality on me? Who are you to judge me? You should be tolerant. You should be inclusive. Celebrate the diversity of my sin. You know, all this. Uh, that's the postmodern mindset. And, and so to think that I would have the chutzpah, the gall, the temerity to rebuke you? Wow! This is from another planet to our culture. This sounds like another age, another era. It is. It's called the kingdom of God. It's different. It doesn't work the way the world works. And in the kingdom of God, if I love you, and you love me, and we love Jesus, and we want His name to be honored, and I personally witness I think that's key, a sin in your life, or especially if you sin against me, then I have a responsibility to lovingly say, you know, it's kind of awkward, but I, something you did just didn't make sense to me and it, it kind of tripped me up a little. Can, can you just explain that to me? Because that was bothering me. And, you know, we need to rebuke each other, confront each other. Again, analogy of the family. We rebuke each other in our families. I rebuke my kids all the time. You know, what's a rebuke? A rebuke is a simple command. Stop it. That's the basic message of rebuke. Knock it off. I, I rebuke my kids. I'll, Stop it. Don't put that in your mouth. Stop it. Don't hit him with that. Stop it. You know, I'm rebuking them. Husbands and wives rebuke each other. My wife rebukes me. A lot. Because um, I need it. Just the other day I was, uh, we over at some, uh, hanging out with some people and uh, we, we started talking about our kids and, uh, you know, some of the frustrations we have. And, and I started, uh, you know, I just started talking about one of my kids. You know how you just kind of get carried away talking and talking? And, and I, I started just really saying some disparaging things. And uh, we came home that night and, you know, we're getting ready for bed and whatever. And my wife says, you know, she's like, at that thing tonight, uh, you know, when you're talking like that about one of our kids, I don't think you should have done that. 
She says, because it was really disparaging, you know, and I'm like, huh, you know? She's like, well, what if our kid was in the other room? What if they heard that? And don't you, you don't want to become one of those parents, do you, Jeremy, who's always complaining about their kids? Just a griper, even when the kid's there. You ever met parents like that? The, parent, the kid's sitting right there and they're talking about the kid like they aren't there. Just tearing them down right in front of the kid. She's like, you don't want to start heading in that direction, do you? And if we have a problem with our kids, shouldn't we address them directly? You know, what a concept. Instead of talking about them to other people. And I was like, huh. You know, I think I've just been rebuked. <laughs> did it feel good? No. Am I thankful she did it? Yes. Why'd she do it? She loves me. She loves my kids. She loves our family. She wants our family to be honoring to God in the way we relate to each other. And so she you know, had to say, yeah, I don't think she'd do it. She wasn't mean. She wasn't rude. She wasn't witchy. She wasn't... She's was a very kind, humble, even if I may use the word submissive. It was very gentle, but it was direct, and I needed to hear it. And so, you know, I don't know. These people who think they can follow Jesus without the church, I'm like, what are you, made of steel? I need you. I need you to say, Jeremy, knock it off. Jeremy, I know what you're trying to say in the sermon, but you got carried away with that thing and it didn't come out right and it could have offended people. Be careful. Watch how you're talking. Watch how you're living. I need you. I can't do this alone. I'm not that tough. Maybe there's some people who are such super spiritual Christians that all they need is their Bible and the TV preacher and that's their church. But, you know, whoever they are, I'm not one of them. I need you. To help me. I need you to be willing to rebuke me. Um, and so it is in the local church. We need to be free to rebuke each other. To incur- Now, are there dangers to rebuking? Yes. There is a danger. The danger is that, that you can create a kind of witch hunt atmosphere in a church. There's churches like that. Churches can become very legalistic. They can become very rules-oriented where it's all about keeping the rules and, you know, everyone's like a spiritual PI. Everyone's a spiritual secret police. We're like, aha, caught you in a sin. Like, well, I caught you in a sin. Well, I caught you in a bigger sin. And, you know, we're finding each other in sin all the time and always catching each other. And Right? And, and that's not good either. Some of you have come out of legalistic churches like that. Some of you have come out of very controlling churches. Some of you come out of cults. Uh, you know, Doug was talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. That's a very much an, it's sort of the classic atmosphere where there's rules and there's legalism. Uh, I, I kid you not, two Jehovah's Witnesses were at my door yesterday morning. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like preaching the sermon and he gets up and I'm like, ah! But they, they come to my door and it's classic. In front is the trainee who's learning the script and learning, because it's a script, and learning the things they're supposed to say. And every once in a while she looks back because the trainer is behind her giving her affirming nods. And, and every once in a while, she kind of, you know, am I saying the right thing? She'll look back at him and he'll give her an affirming nod. And so she's saying the script and she's learning this whole thing. And I can just see it. There's that, that atmosphere where you memorize things and you repeat things and it's, it's very controlled. That's kind of part of the sociology of that movement. Um, of course, I then said, you know, I should just be honest with you. I, I'm a Baptist preacher. And they're like, well, here's some literature. Have a nice day. It's great talking to you. One of the few times it, it helped to actually tell someone that in Massachusetts, I guess. <laughs> so we need, to re- we need to be willing to rebuke each other. Now, now, how do you keep rebuking from turning into a very controlling, uh, negative, legalistic, domineering kind of thing? And I think the answer is, look at the context. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
verses 1 and 2 um, are all about watching yourself. So before I go to rebuke you, I have to watch myself. Before I even think of challenging you on something, I need to take the log out of my own eye before I you know, go after the speck in your eye. So I've got to check, why am I doing this? Am I just feeling like a crusader? Am I full of myself and my self-righteousness and I'm going to go <coughs> get you? Check yourself. Make sure your heart's in the right place. Make sure I'm not just as guilty of the same sins. And then look what comes after the verse. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, what? Forgive him. And then get this. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said, Lord, increase our faith. I can't do this. If Jesus, isn't that being an enabler? I mean, what is that? You're, you're, you're always saying, it's okay, I forgive you. If someone sins against you seven times in a day, can you really forgive him? So in other words, the atmosphere of the local church needs to be radical grace and forgiveness. That's the atmosphere, not legalism. The, the air of the, of the room should be grace and forgiveness and mercy. And when the atmosphere is grace and mercy, then rebukes can happen in a healthy way. But if the atmosphere is not grace and mercy, then the rebukes just feed in uh, to the problem. I had a lady uh, share a story with me, and I asked her if I could tell you this story. I got permission. Um, and uh, Anyway, you remember a couple of weeks ago I preached a sermon on divorce and remarriage? And uh, she came in because she wanted to talk about that. And she says, you know, I'm divorced. And after you preached that sermon, she says, I cried all the way home. I was like, oh, you know, this conversation's not going good. Oh, no. And she's like, no, no, no. She goes, I'm, I'm here to thank you for speaking the truth, though. She says, and she started to share how she's seen the effects of divorce in her children over the years and how it's made her sad. And, um, and then she said this. This is what really jumped out at me. She said, you know, at the time when I was going through my divorce, she says, I was in a church that preached the Bible and I had friends who loved me and they knew what was going on. And she said, nobody ever challenged me in what I was doing. She said, no one ever loved me enough to say, why are you doing this? Could you explain this to me? This doesn't make sense to me. I was so blown away by that when she said, that's why I said, can I tell you this story Sunday? Because that's exactly what I'm talking about. To hear someone say, I wish somebody who loved me in the church would have said, you know, help me think this through because I don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. And, you know, maybe that would have changed things. Maybe not. But at least, you know, there's not this nagging question, what if, what could have been. And so if I love you and you love me and we love Jesus and we love the reputation of Jesus, which is primarily either upheld or, or besmirched by the local church, then I'm going to be willing to challenge you in love, humbly, and you're going to be willing to challenge me from time to time when we see sin in each other's lives. So here's the second question. The second, first question was, is my life hindering you or helping you in your faith? The second question is, are there people I know and I love who you know, are caught in sin that I know about that I need to go to? Or even things I have questions about. Do I love them enough to sit down with them in a very humble, gentle way and say, can we talk? You know, I don't, this is kind of uncomfortable, but I can't have to bring something up with you. Are, are we able to do that? Or flip it around. Flip it around. Do you have anybody in your life who can speak that way to you? Or are you such an isolated marble Christian that even if you were like going off the deep end, nobody would really know it because nobody really knows. That is, people who know the Lord. Is there anyone who would say to you, what are you doing, man? Hey, I love you, but you've got to knock it off. This isn't good. 
and give that loving, timely rebuke? Do you have anyone who could say that to you? Uh, or do you have this sort of individualized, isolated Christian thing going on? A wise person, a spiritually mature person, appreciates rebukes. Not at first, maybe. It always hurts, and I'm always defensive. When someone challenges me about something, I'm defensive, like you are. But when it goes down, when my defenses drop a little, then I'm like, you know, I appreciate them saying that. Because that's going to help me grow in my faith over time. People, Jesus, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was buried. He's raised. He's at the Father's right hand. And He's really, literally coming back someday. The message of the Gospel is real. There is salvation for anyone who believes in Jesus. The problem is, people around us don't believe us when we tell them that's the case. And so how do we show that Jesus is alive? And I think one of the primary ways that we show the reality of the living Jesus is by the quality of our relationships as a church. People will know Jesus is real when they see the living Jesus living through us. Jesus said, by, all this, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And if we love each other enough to care about each other's spiritual well-being and to care about my spiritual well-being and how it affects you. And I think that as the world, and if the world sees a church that is loving and committed, that that could be, in the postmodern 21st century America, one of the greatest testimonies to Christ that we could offer the world. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you, Jesus, because as we've just been talking about and singing about all morning, you are our Savior, and we thank you that you've saved us into the family of God. And oh, Lord Jesus, we want to glorify you. We want people everywhere to know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray, Jesus, that South Shore Baptist Church would show forth the glory and character of God in the way we relate to each other. Jesus, give us love for each other. Jesus, give us love for the truth. Help us to love your truth so much that we're even willing to challenge each other in a loving, humble sort of way. God, we pray that the atmosphere of this church would always be one of grace and mercy and forgiveness, but also one where we value and love the holiness of God. Lord, I pray that we would be involved in each other's lives. Help us to fight against the individualism of American culture. Help us to fight against the the privatism of our New England upbringing. Lord, help us, for some of us even, to, to reach out beyond our natural uh, tendency to be introverts and to have a friend or two, at least, who really knows us and who we really know them and we can challenge each other and spur each other on. And so, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would work in our church. Oh, we want the name of Jesus to be known on the South Shore and we want our church to be a help to spreading the name of Jesus, not just a hindrance. And so, Jesus, protect us from ourselves. Work through us. Work in spite of us. That your name and your glory might be known. And I ask this in your powerful name, Christ. Amen. Praise is going to come and lead us in a closing song. It's a great song about um, who we are in Christ. You know, it's called In Christ Alone. And this is the basis for our community in Christ is our salvation in Him. Would you stand and let's sing this song together.